This is another very special episode from my old podcast. Uh, this is with Michael Ellsberg. He's the author of the bestseller, The Education of Millionaires. And at this time, when we had this conversation, it was late 2015. Um, I had been following Michael for a while. Uh, he, he would, he went through this uh, period of like creative mania where he was posting like very outlandish things, to the internet and things that were both inspiring and like got a lot of uh, wow factor. Um, and then he posted this article, a very vulnerable article about, um, his bipolar disorder and what from a less educated standpoint, we could just call manic depression. And I was very interested in this because when I saw him in his mania, uh, I was kind of in this like rut creatively. And I was like, wow, like this guy, he's, he seems kind of nuts, but like, it's, it's like inspiring seeing him and then seeing him crash afterwards. Um, and, and go into the depression after the manic phase. I uh, was also interesting because I was also like basically struggling as a creative and not to, not to say that, you know, I, I know what it's, what bipolar disorder is like at all, but I, I do feel as a creative person or someone who desires to be creative, you go through these swings of, um, uh, creative outburst followed by depression. Like this cycle is very common. Depression and creativity seem to be linked, uh, very much. And it was great hearing the perspective from Michael because he's written a bunch about bipolar disorder. Um, he has some great articles on it. Um, and, and more for anyone who's not afflicted with bipolar disorder, uh, the idea of understanding the creative cycle and the emotional cycle and the tolls and things that you can know about and, and simply hearing his, his story so vulnerably, uh, was really touching, especially at that time in my life. Um, and I think it's useful for anyone going through a creative struggle or, or challenge. This is a very special episode. It's a little longer than most of my podcasts. Um, this is episode negative nine, Michael Ellsberg on creative madness. You're listening to the Rwando podcast, perpetual orgasm, infinite play. Please subscribe on iTunes and enjoy the show. We spoke a few months ago, and uh, it was a great conversation, and the number one thing that stood out to me when we spoke, uh, speaking about uh, the book that I'm writing and stuff, was you, you made a distinction between entertainment and education, or entertainment and information. I forget the exact words you said. Mm -hmm. um, and that totally shifted how I started viewing the work that I do and, and the writing that I do, because I, it became very clear on how I want to write my book. It's, it's more... Even if there's things you can learn from it, it's mainly for entertainment. And I think that ties into a lot of things that I want to speak about. But um, can you say a little bit about that lens that you have? Sure. Well, I, I help people think about book ideas um, all the time. And the and I only work in nonfiction. I don't really personally know anything about fiction. I don't write it. I'm not a big fiction reader. So, um, you know, the most basic distinction that I, that there is, um, when someone's thinking about a book project is, you know, is this going to be primarily a how to like tell you how to do stuff? The reader's going to learn things, or is it going to be a narrative, um, that, that, that grips people and has them turning the pages because they want to know what happens and they're finding it so entertaining. And, you know, your project, when we were talking about it really could have gone both ways um, because there is a lot of information in it and, um, and it could be a how to, but it seems really clear to me that and when we talked about it and, and still thinking about it, that 
it's got you've got a great story. I mean, you were involved with this um, really kind of controversial, highly sexually charged organization that um, that just probably has a million stories associated with it. And there's a there's a clear narrative arc also of, you know, I don't know exactly what the difference was between when you went in and when you went out. But I'm sure there was a big difference. So you have a narrative arc there. So that's and when you say entertainment, I mean, that that is a very broad term. It doesn't just mean, you know, things blowing up and action movies and car chases and things, you know, like anything that grips you and has you wanting to know how it turns out is entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I've been looking at it in that broader sense of like anything that really engages your attention and then you want to look at not for like self-improvement purposes or uh, to gain anything to add to your list of attributes, but something that just like really engages your, uh, your attention. Um, That's the way I was looking at it. Um, which I, I really want to like zoom out on that that idea because uh, when we spoke before we kind of connected on this uh, I guess our judgment of certain elements of the self improvement industry and how and I love the term that you bring up uh, bliss fronting about you know people trying to make things look uh, all like lovely and light all the time and the dark side which I think we'll speak about quite a bit today. Uh, is really where people's attention gets like really engaged and where you care about every word rather than the bullet points. Yeah. I mean, people for, for a narrative, um, and just bringing it back to yours for a minute, you know, people, if it's all lovey dovey and like, you know, just a a list of the wonderful things that happened, um, that's not going to be interesting to people. Uh, For some reason, it's probably hardwired in our psychology People want to see conflict uh, in their in, in their stories. That it's it, it, again, that doesn't mean fighting or violence, but some kind of struggle, some kind of overcoming. It could even be conflict in within overcoming something within yourself. Um, and we're we're really drawn to that um, in our in our stories that we look for, whether they end you know happily or not. Um, we, we want to see someone kind of struggling with something. Yeah. And uh, I reached out most recently because you had that great blog post, um, I think you posted a few weeks ago, um, about the dark place that you went to recently. And uh, one, it was great just because so few people, especially public figures, will actually share those parts of themselves, even though we all experience something like that. Um, and there's this one line that jumped out in that post was uh, that you wrote was, Part of my purpose in living is to be open and honest about the dark sides of life. The struggles that are equally a part of human existence is all love and light so that others don't feel alone. Um, is that like a mission you feel right now? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I have all this shit going on uh, and I figure I, I might as well do something useful with it. And it's it's kind of hard to know what would, could possibly u- be useful about depression. But one thing that is is useful about it is making other people feel less alone and less ashamed if they're, <clears throat> if they're depressed. For those who don't know or you know, don't follow my Facebook um, I, I recently made a post about um, going through a really severe depression, um, and you know I don't know if listeners 
to have been depressed or know people who have been depressed, but it's different than just being a little bummed out or sad. Or it's In fact, it's different even than being in a really bad mood. Um, my experience of depression, and, and this is pretty common, is just a complete emptying out of any sense of feeling, any caring, any sense of motivation, of um, you know, of, of wanting to do anything. It's, it's like a, it's like a total numbness to life. And it's, uh, it's completely debilitating in my case. It was, it was, you know, there were periods when I just could barely get out of bed. Um, this was a, a recurrence of a, a, a bipolar, which I had been, I dealt with a lot in my twenties and I wrote about, um, uh, in a, in a piece on Forbes, kind of my struggle overcoming that period. And I thought I had kind of overcome it. It had been about eight years since I had had symptoms and then they came back really strong this summer. Um, so, you know, I am fortunate in that I don't, I've, I've figured out how to work without a boss. You know, I'm a writer, I do consulting, I coach people on writing, I coach people on how to build their networks. Um, and so, you know, I'm able to write pretty honestly about what's going on in my life, um, without worrying about, you know, alienating my boss or what the coworkers who might be backstabbers are going to, how they're going to use that information to, you know, to get ahead of me somehow at work or whatever. So, you know, I think a lot of people for good reasons just aren't able to be very open about what's going on, but the result, the collective result of that is that everybody thinks everyone else is so, so happy and cheerful. And we don't really know what everyone else is going through. And that means that if you're going through something, you kind of think that you're, there's something wrong with you or that you're alone. And so I, I like to use my position of being able to be open about things to, um, to help people feel less alone in those. Gotcha. And so you went years without having, this feeling of depression and then it hits this year. Did you feel like, Oh shit, something's wrong or what, what was going through your mind when you recognized? Yeah, that? totally. Well, what, what happened was, um, I, so uh, bipolar or as it used to be called manic depression, um, you have these kind of two phases where, um, you're in the mania, you're like totally up and you're not sleeping. You're just got tons of energy. You've got all these creative ideas, um, a, um, grandiosity, you know, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to create this new business. I'm going to create this radical new form of art. And, um, and I was manic this summer. Um, it was coincident with a period of like very heavy use of psychedelics. Um, I think that they were kind of feeding each other. So the, the mania was having me be really excited about exploring all these states of consciousness and the, the through psychedelics and the psychedelics were keeping the mania going on. So it was, they were egging each other on and you know, I was, I was really flying very high for like four months. You know, if anyone's experienced mania, it's, it's, you know, incredible feeling. It's like, it's like constantly being on like 10 cups of coffee with no stop. It just keeps going. And, um, 
And I, you know, I was doing all this crazy stuff. I was, um, you know, for better or worse, <laughs> probably mostly worse. I was, you know, writing a lot on Facebook during this period. And I was, um, I kind of created this, this concept that I, I wrote that I'd turned my whole life into a novel. And so I was like, I was sort of like updating the novel every day with like my latest crazy occurrences because that's how it felt. It felt like I was living in a, in a novel. Yeah. And then as a writer, like just watching that and even hearing me say that now that that seems so attractive, like that kind of mania as a creative person, like to be overcome with that, like 10 cups of coffee feeling seems like really fun. Yeah, it is. I mean, no one, no one in, you know, very few people who are manic depressive complain about the manic side. I mean, it can be, it can be very destructive. Um, it, like it can, you know, I didn't, I got away, um, you know, thank goodness, you know, relatively unscathed from it, but people can get into fights. They can get into, you know, like spend enormous sums of money. They can, you know, um, there's all kinds of stuff. So, um, so yeah, so then it just kept going and I, I just kind of started, um, like it just, it, it became too much. Like it just kind of got crazy. And, um, I started like believing that I was like in, uh, in a kind of spiritual relationship with Dionysus, who is the, the Greek god of madness and ritual ecstasy and orgies. I, I think he's the only, um, you know, religious kind of archetype that is devoted to group sex. And so I was very drawn to this. And I guess that's not so crazy. I mean, people think that they're in relationship with Jesus or yeah. Buddha or, you know, it was, a, it was a religious, but I was kind of overcome with these religious feelings. Was it, and like it a was, metaphorical understanding or you actually felt like you're connecting with this? DA? Um, somewhere in between. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't like attached to any sort of supernatural explanations, but I, I, on the experiential level, I was experiencing myself in relation with an, an, you know, a, some kind of spirit entity. Now, if, if a scientist came along and told me, well, that was, you know, this part of your brain firing these neurons, I'd probably just say like, okay, I'm down with, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to argue that there's some, you know, man in the sky called Dionysus. Uh -huh. But, you know, I was having the experience of being in relation to a spiritual entity. And it just was like kind of getting out of control. And, it, and uh, um, there was kind of one final um, LSD trip in the middle of July. Um, and then it just, after, when it came down from that, I was like, okay, too, I, I've gone too far like this. I finally reached that point. I mean, I've, I've been experimenting with psychedelics, um, since I was about 20. So that's 18 years now. I'm 38. Um, you know, I've never done hard drugs. I've, you know, I've done a couple lines of Coke in my life. I'll never do it again. Never done heroin. I've never done meth. Like I'm, I'm not into that stuff. I don't drink alcohol, but you know, psychedelics, I was very, very interested in for a long time. And I'd never reached that point of like, okay, I've gone too far until this July. <laughs> and what were your dosages like or how frequent? 
Um, I mean, I don't know the exact doses, but they, you know, I was, I was doing some kind of trip, like maybe twice a week, um, plus a lot of pot. So, you know, that's, you know, there's people who have gone farther than that, but they don't tend to turn out super well. (laughs) So, you know, I would, that was, that's, you know, if you, anyone who's done psychedelics, like twice a week is a lot. I mean, you know, a trip takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It goes for a whole day. You have to integrate it. Um, and so I just, yeah, I was like, I've gotten, I've gone too far. That's, I just felt it in my body. And so I, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to stop. Um, I quit all, you know, all recreational drugs, pot, psychedelics, you know, alcohol, although I wasn't really drinking any alcohol. Um, and, um, you know, fortunately I, I was, I was doing things that don't really tend to hook you in a physiological way. So, um, I didn't have a problem stopping, um, but I did stop and, boom, I just went in, it like flipped, like it just completely flipped. And I went into, you know, one of the worst depressions that I've experienced. And and I have a history of depression. And, um, you know, it was, it's been four months now. I'm, I'm doing better. I've like, I've been attacking it from, you know, multiple angles, which I can talk about. But, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling better especially the last week or so feels like I've, I've turned some kind of corner, knock on wood. Um, but you know, when I was in the depths of it, it was really bad. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I was not wanting to be alive and really the only reason I was, I was staying alive and not just offing myself was that it would, would totally crush my parents. Um, and I love my parents and I just would never, it would be incredibly selfish to, for me to inflict, that pain on them just because I was in pain. Uh, and so I kind of hung in there and seemed to have been turning, seemed to be turning a corner now. Gotcha. Yeah. It's really incredible. It's really the most incredible is that you can speak about it with such clarity. Whereas most people who are depressed can't even come up with those words or even coming out of it. Yeah. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in these States, so I've, I've read about them a lot. I've introspected a lot. I've tried a lot of different things to get out of them, um, both mainstream and holistic. You know, I, I, I believe when you're in one of these states, like you, you got to try everything because you got to, you just read about all the mainstream approaches, all the holistic approaches and, and just attack it from as many different angles as you can. Yeah, I want to ask about your methods in a sec, but I'm still curious about the mania. Um, mm-hmm. We actually have a question from one of the listeners um, on what did you learn from the drug experiences? And I actually asked for that, like, was there anything you were seeking in the mania um, that maybe uh, gave you the impulse to take LSD twice a week rather than whatever you were doing before? Yeah. <laughs> um, well let's start with what I was seeking. Um, you know, I'm a writer, I'm creative, uh, and I'm, I consider myself a spiritual person and we can talk about what that means. Uh, but I, so I was, I was seeking create, I was seeking that creative juice. You know, I kept, I kept feeling that I was on the verge of some great discovery for my writing. Uh, and, 
Um, and you know, the writing I was producing was lively, um, and I was actually getting really good feedback from it. Uh, and you know, it was there was a there was a manic energy to the writing, um, which people responded to, and I just kept wanting more and more. Um, uh, another thing that I was seeking was um, I was I was using. Um, I was using something called Moxie, M-O-X-I. That's the street name. The um, uh, the chemical name I think is 5-M-E-O-M-I-P-T. It's it's not super well known. It's one of these designer psychedelics, um, and it's an incredible sexual drug. I mean, it's just this thing. Like you know, I've had a lot of sex. I've had a lot of different kinds of sex and different different circumstances and different styles and ways of different levels. And uh, this stuff really is an exceptional sexual experience. Um, I had the experience of um, just totally dematerializing into sexual energy mm-hmm. and, and, and feeling my partner dematerialize so that our sexual energies were just merging and, and uniting. And, you know, people talk about being able to access those states without drugs. And, and that's great. I, I, I want to learn that because I'm taking a long break from drugs. But at that time, that's how I got there. And it was great. And I was going to sex parties. And, um, you know, when I'm when I'm manic, I'm, you know, I, I seem to get on a roll with just being able to seduce partners. And, you know, I'm very lively and um, and kind of, you know, I just have a lot of personality and that, that, um, that is, that's seductive. There's a lot of energy there. Um, and so I was, you know, I was, there was a sexual aspect to it, um, and a spiritual aspect. I think a lot of people explore psychedelics because they want spiritual answers, um, or to have a, to, to have a spiritual experience. And, um, I was, I was having that, um, I, in terms of what I learned, I mean, to be honest, this go around, what I learned is that I can go too far. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> that's what I learned. I mean, you know, there's a, there's diminishing returns and I was definitely by the end in the point of diminishing returns. Like if you take somebody who's never done psychedelics and they are, you know, they have a very sort of kind of square, let's say, outlook on life. You know, you go to work, you go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you go to bed, you go to work, and they they don't really have any sense that there's other ways to view the world or that there's other realms of consciousness. And if that person is open to it, I mean, if they're closed to it, it's a really bad idea. But if they're curious or open to it and they take, you know, a mushroom trip or an LSD trip or ayahuasca trip, it's going to open, you know, vast worlds for that person. I mean, people report their first couple psychedelic trips are life-changing experiences that that completely alter the way uh, they view the world and themselves. And it's very hard to explain if you haven't done it. Um, how that happens, but you just have to trust that that generally does happen for people. Um, I had gotten to the point where I was sort of, I was just chasing, you know, I was, there was a, 
um, even though I wasn't physically hooked, there was a kind of addictive quality to it. And that I was, I was wanting more and more and more. And, you know, I was having the morals, like a combination of physical pleasure and like, like chasing the muse. Yeah. Just like having far out experiences, you know, for my birthday, I, um, got really high and I had, uh, six female friends dom me. Um, and so I was, um, you know, I, I was completely, I mean, the drugs already put you in somewhat of a, um, surrendered state where you're, where you're just going with the flow and not necessarily exerting a lot of agency. And then these women were, you know, were flogging me and like, we did this whole role play. Um, and I went into what's called subspace. Um, now you're not supposed to combine drugs and BDSM. And I flipped a you know, middle finger, um, to that rule. And in that case, it, in that circumstance, it turned out really well. And I had a great experience, but I, I've since then had experiences where I saw, I saw the value of that rule. And now I, I basically am going to follow it. <laughs> yeah. I just like, I was so out there and my partner was so out there in, um, that, um, we just, uh, you know, once we were sober, we realized like we wouldn't have made the same choices as when we were high. And, um, that was, you know, that was sobering. That was like, wow. Okay. These, these drugs, like we were both so high, like they really impacted like, you know, how far we went and like all this stuff. And, so I just learned, I mean, everything, you know, we, we really like processed it a lot and like parsed everything and came to, you know, really came to an understanding that, um, that we want to play sober. Uh, and that was for both of us. Um, so you had impulses that were unnatural. No, it's just like, it's just like the intensity, you know, like the, like, the intensity and the, the ferocity and like how deep we're going and how long and like how much, of, how much physical, um, stuff is going on with the BDSM. And, you know, you don't even feel things really like you can, you can like slap somebody or whatever, and they're not even going to feel the pain until, until later if they're on drugs. So, um, so, you know, I just learned a lot. And, you know, fortunately everything turned out okay. And, you know, that like, that, you know, no one was hurt and I, and, um, you know, I'm on good terms with everyone. And, but like, I was just, I was partying too hard. I mean, that's when we come down to it, I lost, you know, this is something in my community, in, in the Burning Man community at large, um, where, you know, they, there's just, they sometimes call psychedelics, um, medicine. And, uh, I do think that they can be used as medicine for the soul. Um, if you use them really intentionally for that way, if you set up a ceremonial container and you have like really deep intentions, um, the problem is that people, um, start using that term. And I was certainly one of them and I've seen other people to just assume that if you're doing psychedelics, it's medicine. And they even say like, well, what medicine are you taking tonight? Instead of like, what drugs are you taking tonight? It's like, what medicine are you taking tonight? And that can trick you because if you just think that automatically 
um, that <laughs> it's medicine because it's a psychedelic, um, you're, you're, you could start fooling yourself. And I saw myself mm-hmm. fooling myself with that. Yeah, that's really interesting with the language piece because really it's, it's such a small difference. You're just calling one thing a new name, but because it has different connotations, like it totally changes your behavior. Like I, I saw that a lot in the organization I was a part of where like really small changes in like someone's, someone's language essentially was how people got brainwashed. Like rational people would totally change their perspective just because they changed a few words. Yeah, totally. The power of language is really, you know, really, um, deep. Yeah. So to finish answering the, the listener's question, um, you know, I got a lot out of psychedelics, uh, uh, earlier in my earlier explorations. Um, it just opened me to a spiritual side of myself. It awakened my sexuality. It, it gets you to see your own body in a whole different way. You have an experience of the energetic flows within the body. You can really understand a lot of the, if you've read any, you know, Buddhism or Taoism, you can, it really starts to make sense to a Western mind when you're on psychedelics and you could, obviously you could get there without it, but if you're not there and you happen to take it, um, you know, you, you could begin to understand what they're talking about on a, on a deeper level. And by the way, I'm personally not recommending for or against it for anybody. I mean, it's, it's a choice that you have to make. You have to do a lot of research. Um, it can be life changing. It can be disastrous. Um, it, you know, so, so everyone has to make that choice uh, for themselves. So do you still feel like it was a good chapter in your novel of your life? <laughs> I, I feel now I feel good about it. I mean, I've, you know, I, I made some messes and I cleaned them up and, um, you know, just apologize to people for, for ways that I showed up at different social events. Um, and, um, I, assuming I get out of this depression, which I, I am assuming at this point, I mean, there were times when I was really hopeless about it. Um, cause it's been about four months. Um, uh, I, I feel, I feel like I learned a lot. I mean, I, you know, my highest value is learning. And I, at this point I can say I've, I've learned a lot. You know, I've been on Sunday will be, um, 12 weeks, uh, with no recreational drugs, um, and including, including no alcohol. Um, you know, that's actually 12 weeks doesn't sound a lot, but you know, most people don't go 12 weeks without a beer. So, um, so I am actually, you know, that is something there that I'm, I'm not like using any substances to alter my consciousness, um, or to get high. Uh, you know, so that I've really valued my sobriety right now. Um, it's been, you know, and I'll, I won't, I won't, I don't think I'm going to do it forever. I'm, I'm not like in a 12 step program and, um, you know, but right now, what it's forcing me to be with myself and to be with the dark side, like we talked about and to, to, to deal with it instead of to just escape it by taking a drug and feeling great, um, and going into mania, uh, it's forced me to be like, okay, what the fuck is here? What, what is down here? And, um, you know, I've discovered like some really deep things that I hadn't 
really thought about or dealt with. Um, and I won't go into too much detail, but, um, you know, one of them is that I was, uh, I was raised, uh, in a very activist kind of progressive left wing household. And, um, my father in particular is you know, very, he's an anti-nuclear activist. He's very, very like up on the nuclear issue. Like he, you know, he knows pretty much everything about it. And, you know, this was his obsession. And so I was raised with kind of this fear that I was hearing about since, since birth, basically of like, you know, the, the, that there's a huge danger. The, the nuclear danger hasn't gone away. Um, we're still, um, you know, we're like, there's still like incredibly risky things going on. Uh, and the world, you know, has a really big chance of blowing up within the next hundred years because of these things. So whether you agree with that or not, that was my reality that I was, you know, raised in. And so I, I realized like I have a very, very dark view of the world, uh, and of our prospects. And I seem to be drawn to other catastrophic, uh, issues to kind of learn about them and kind of sulk over them, you know, global warming, like AI risk, like anything that's like massively catastrophic <laughs> for some reason, my mind like goes there. And, um, this has like, I'm realizing like, a, a, like a lot of the depression comes from this hopelessness of feeling like our society is doomed. Um, and I have just had to, um, find a way to still, um, you know, still get up out of bed and do things with this like really deeply seated fear and kind of hopelessness. Um, and, and I've been finding it like I, I've been really focused rather than trying to argue my mind out of those positions and say, no, everything's great. You know, everything's going to turn out awesome. Um, which is not, which is not my belief system, actually. Um, I've just been trying to find like, okay, well, let's say all this is going to happen. What, what is still meaningful within that context? Um, and I've, you know, the, the, quest, the answer I keep coming to is love, you know, like opening your heart to people is valuable in itself. Whatever is going to come of it, whatever is going to come of the world, um, just learning to open your heart. And, um, and, you know, give love and receive love, um, to those around you. And that I'm finding to be helping me get out of this, uh, out of this depression. Yeah. And like, uh, a lot of people speak about the importance of love and like, it's uh, almost like a trite, uh, thing to say, love is the answer, but it's so much more going back to the entertainment thing almost is so much more interesting and engaging to have heard you go through like, a bottom and then coming to that realization as opposed to like just reading in a book about nice things to do. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. There's, uh, um, something I'm always looking out for in, um, my, in my personal development. And when I hear about or read about other approaches to personal development is, uh, what I would call a dissociated form of love. Um, so dissociation means not, not feeling everything in your body. 
So people can go to the love and light. We call them love and lighters, you know, who are like, everything is wonderful and everything's beautiful and everything's evolving and everything is love. And if it's not love, it's just like a misunderstanding of the ultimate vibration. And I would call that a dissociated form of love because it's so clearly not engaging with the the darkness in the world of which there is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot in the world that isn't love. Yeah. And so, um, th- what I try to cultivate, um, is a love that, that engages with the darkness that, that has room for it, that doesn't deny it. Um, and that, that can actually send love to, the darkness on its own terms. So rather than turning away from it and saying, no, okay, no, that's, that's not there. Like really everything is beautiful and light. I mean, you've probably met people like this. Uh, They're fairly common in the spiritual new age kind of communities. Um, and, uh, I have a, a practice, um, that I actually created a, a recording about. You can find it. It's free online called loving the unlovable within, uh, and the idea of loving the unlovable within is to find that part of ourselves that we find most repulsive. And I'm not talking physically here. I'm not, it, this is about in, inner world. Like what's, what's the part, what's the thing about ourselves that we hate? Like the aspect of our personality or who we are that we find repulsive and everybody's got one. You know, I don't believe if someone says they don't, that they love everything about themselves. Um, and, and instead of trying to change that, um, which kind of further shames it, it's like, okay, well that part, I'm going to try to change that in implicit in the trying to change it is a further judgment of that. It's wrong. In fact, further hatred of it. So I, um, like to practice just, like, okay, that part is there. Like that part of me that will just totally fly off the handle and like go kind of crazy, uh, is there. And, um, and you know, I can work to, uh, prevent it from harming my life, um, and harming others, but, uh, it's there. It's that potential is there. And can I just love it? Just like, just like the analogy would be, you know, if you're uh, um, a parent and you have a you know a teenager that's driving you crazy, and that's let's say a problem teenager, and um, and you know causing you know totally morose and not doing schoolwork or whatever, you know, you're still gonna love that teenager. You're still gonna express love. You're not you're not casting it about. Um, yeah, and the dark side is so many good things. Like those people you mentioned that are have like a dissociated love. Um, they usually they don't have great senses of humor. They usually have sexual issues or like are impotent or creatively impotent. Like the creativity and sex and humor, they all come from that that darkness that you're talking about. Yeah, totally. I mean, someone you know, someone who um, just thinks on the you know on the positive side about everything, uh, you know, is is not like there's there there's not that creative tension. You know, if you're just in the doom and gloom, it's not going to be fertile for creativity or humor either. But the, all of this stuff, like the, the aliveness and um, sexual energy and humor and creativity, uh, they come from the creative tension 
between the dark and the light. Um, and if you're denying one side of it, um, then there's no, there's no creative tension at all. Um, you know, when you're depressed, you're, you're denying the light side of life. You know, everything is doom and gloom. Everything is negative. Well, there's no creativity there either. Um, so you, um, yeah, you, you want, you want it all. Um, and one thing I would say on this, on the sexual, um, front that you just talked about was it, um, you know, if people have this idea that sex is like all, you know, all in the light, um, you know, that's, that, that, in my opinion, that leads to a, a kind of denatured, um, like you said, impotent kind of weak sexuality. I mean, there's a, there's a part of sexuality that's very carnal and that's, that is like, a um, um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, uh, just a taking and a, and a, a predator prey relationship. And obviously that can, that can be expressed in very destructive and unethical ways. Uh, but if you can learn to harness that energy, um, and, and, and bring it into a sexuality that is constructive, that is based on consent and respect, um, that just adds, uh, like an, it's like an engine that adds muscle to the sexual passion. And that's that those energies are explored in BDSM often. Yeah, that, that uh, distinction kind of relates to another listener's question we have. Um, it's a bit abstract, but I'll, I'll ask it the way he wrote it and see what you think. Um, he wrote, how do I distinguish between my authentic dark side and the other voices, feelings and forces that seem similar but are not coming from my core? Um, you know, I'm not a big believer in... Uh, I'm not a big believer in this whole idea that we have like, uh, you know, in a, a true self and then like this fake, somehow this like fake layer that got on top of us or something like that. Um, you know, I believe these are all parts of ourselves. And so if, if someone is having, um, you know, voices that are negative, that's a part of him. Um, and um, what I would recommend is again, like finding a way to integrate that into the self so that it's tied to other things like love and it's tied to, you know, that, that it can be there and be respected on its own terms, but it's not the only thing, you know, the problem comes when, when one of these parts becomes our only thing. Um, like when I just gave free reign, you know, to that kind of manic, like more, more, more side of myself, that's when the problem arises. Um, the, you know, the, the analogy I like to use is like, who's in the driver's seat. So when I was manic, the part of me that just wanted to get higher and higher and, and have more out there, creative and sexual and spiritual experiences was in the driver's seat. And it was driving me towards disaster. So now it's still there. It's just not in the driver's seat anymore. I'm not, it's still, it's still in, it's like a family vacation in the car, you know, it's, but it's in the back seat. It's like the, you know, the, 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 the deadhead teenager who's like listening to the dead or something. <laughs> With that, now. Uh, now there's, 
rounded, mature version of myself drive a car. <laughs> 38, I'm rounding up on 40, you know, pretty soon. And like, I figure 40 is a good time to have that part of myself driving the car. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so you mentioned before uh, that you you found different methods for attacking depression. Can you share some of those? Absolutely. And by the way, I just want to emphasize, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not recommending anything to anybody else. Uh, the one thing I would recommend is to look into these things, research them, ask your doctor, look on them online. But I, you know, I, I'm not, um, I'm not like hawking any particular cure here. Um, but I mean, the, 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 there's so many angles you got to attack these things from. Um, so one is diet and nutrition. Um, and you know, a lot of this stuff I kind of already knew from my last go round, but, um, I just had to re-implement. So, uh, you know, getting sober is really important. Not, um, you know, not because depression is like in large part, like a neurotransmitter issue. So if you're getting high, you're, you know, you're fucking with the neurotransmitters. So you know, being sober, um, like not like having a very kind of, a, a diet that gives you a really steady energy. So not eating sugar, which has you go up and down. Um, but instead, uh, you know, eating basically, you know, a paleo diet that gives you, you know, very, um, you know, like, like lots of protein, um, lots of vegetables, like whole grains. I guess that's not paleo, but you know, any, anything that is, gives you a kind of steady energy, um, you know, not eating junk food, um, uh, then, so that's the dietary stuff. Then there's, there's all kinds of supplements. Um, you know, omega threes, I think are really important. Um, probiotics I think are important. Um, I went, so another angle is I went to a naturopath. Um, in fact, right after this interview, I'm going to hear the results of all these tests that the naturopath took, you know, uh, like hormones, thyroid, um, testosterone, neurotransmitter levels, uh, vitamin levels, food allergies, sensitivities, you know, gluten intolerance, um, testing all that stuff. And this is stuff that mainstream psychiatry, um, just doesn't, um, doesn't generally do, um, all those kind of tests. So we'll see if, if something, um, comes out of that. Um, and then, um, I did go to a psychiatrist, um, and, um, you know, the, the standard for my, what I have is, um, lithium. I went on lithium and we tried, you know, a bunch of different, um, drugs in, on top. The lithium kind of keeps the mania in control. I, I really want to see if I can get off the lithium. It's, it's, totally killed my libido. I mean, I went from one extreme to the other. I don't even think about sex now. And you know, I could, I could go a certain amount of time like that, but eventually obviously I'm going to want my libido back. Right. Um, and I feel it just kind of slowing my creativity down, which could be a good thing for a period, but it's just not, it's not like a sustainable thing for me. Um, Did then I tried, uh, uh -huh. insanity and creativity go together. Um, I think that a little bit of insanity and creativity go together. I mean, if you're really just don't have any grip on reality, probably there's probably some exceptions, but, 
probably the art you're going to create is um, just going to be too disjointed and out there to, to, to interact with society. But if you're not insane at all, then you're kind of just totally within the bounds of society. Um, you're going to just create kind of mundane art. So I think like if you think about it, insanity is on an experiential level is not, not believing in the same things that the mainstream society believes in. Um, and it's like not, it's like, it's like having a reality that is not normal, uh, in a statistical sense. Like you, your reality is like way out on the bell curve. Yeah. And that quote, uh, you're crazy if you laugh and no one laughs with you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Then that, that was for controlling the mania. One thing I learned from my psychiatrist, you know, I, I asked him, I was like, look, why can't we just treat the depression? You know, the mania, um, especially if I'm not mixing it with, with drugs, um, um, recreational drugs and mania is like really fun and creative and energy. And he said something that really changed my perspective on it. He said, uh, you can't have the mania without the depression. They get, you, if you're manic, you're going to crash, which has been my experience. I just never really saw it quite in such a deterministic way. Um, and so you've got to treat the mania also. Um, yeah, I, I so, can feel how, like, I don't like hearing that either. Um, like, as a creative person who also likes LSD, like when people say like, Oh, every up has a down, like a part of me wants to believe that you can have like crazy ups without having to crash. But you're saying that's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, occasional use of, you know, psychedelic, I don't think for someone who's does not manic depressive is, is probably, yeah, you're probably gonna be down for a day or two, but it, it's probably not going to be a crash. Um, um, but I, I do think that with doing so many psychedelics, having an underlying manic depression condition, um, was, you know, was probably was playing with fire. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I'm taking, you know, other, um, I tried something called Abilify, uh, for the depression that worked, uh, for, it worked for about two weeks and then it just stopped working kind of one day to the next. Um, and then I'm on something now called Lamictal, which uh, is an antidepressant for bipolar people. Um, so, you know, some, I'm in sort of holistic community and a lot of people when I hear I'm on pharmaceuticals are like horrified and they're like, you've got to get off those. They're terrible. And I'm like, look, I don't want to be on these forever. And I want to do all the holistic stuff with diet and supplements and, and, you know, uh, exercise and spiritual and meditation. Like, but when you're in a hole, you're in a fucking hole. And, you know, if you've got, if you've got one ladder to get out of it, you know, you use whatever you got. So, um, I, you know, I'm trying, I'm throwing everything at this cause, uh, it's been, uh, really debilitating. Yeah, I'm probably part of that crowd that really uh, airs away from pharmaceuticals. But yeah, when it comes to like acute symptoms, uh, holistic medicine doesn't cut it necessarily. You need something direct. Yeah, or it, it's not even that it's, it's just, you know, you don't know what's going to work. Like they don't, you know, the mental conditions are diagnosed by their symptoms, not by like, they don't know. Uh, it's like, you know, I'm a cancer survivor you know, that when they diagnosed me, they had a very specific 
proof of exactly what was wrong um, and like where the tumor was and like all of that stuff. You don't have that with mental conditions. So you don't ultimately know exactly what's going to work because you don't know what's wrong exactly. So you just got to try a bunch of different stuff. That's again, that's my opinion. I'm not, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I'm very experienced yeah. as a patient. That's for sure. Do you think that, um, cause you said, you said you went to a naturopath that tested your hormone levels. Do you think that would show like something concrete of like, Oh, these are like the hormone levels of, uh, of a depressed person. Well, actually, interestingly enough, I literally just got some test results um, in the we you know in the interim when we um, we took a break, mm -hmm. and um, she found like all these things like um, uh, I'm low in B12, I'm low in B5, I'm low in D3, um, I have uh, low testosterone, um, so. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna try all this stuff to um, to take you know see if it see if it makes a difference. Like um, try um, the, the vitamins and try. Um, she recommended something called DHEA for the low testosterone. Now I have no idea if they're gonna work or not, and I don't even know you know what the scientific evidence is that taking these things will make a difference. But they don't really hurt, other than costing a bit of money. So again, it's in the spirit of trying everything. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, you know, throw everything I got at this. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you're a spiritual person. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions to ask on that, but have, have you tried more like mystical stuff too? Yeah. Well, what, you know, I, what I have, um, come to is, you know, to me, spirituality is not something very esoteric. It doesn't involve even beliefs that are necessarily um, supernatural or that would go against uh, scientific understanding of the world. Um, it, it, it's it's literally just looking at yourself on the, on through the lens of your own soul, which is a way of looking at yourself. Um, in, instead of looking at yourself as, you know, um, uh, you know, Western medicine looks at you sort of like a thing, almost like a machine with all these different parts. And that is one lens, but there's another lens that we have this thing called consciousness, which no one really knows why or how it arises from a bunch of molecules interacting. Um, and you can look at your own consciousness and you can, um, you can change your own consciousness. Like you can, you know, definitely like things like diet and exercise and supplements and things and, or drugs or pharmaceuticals change your consciousness, but you can also look within and we have the ability to just change it by what we pay attention to. Um, so that's where it's sort of like spirit in the sense of like team spirit or, you know, the spirit of an age where it's, it's, um, it's this, you know, when a team has high spirit or low spirit, they're still the same people. They just, there's something has shifted in their internal experience that has them more alive and more, more attuned to the excitement and possibilities of life. Um, so for me, uh, what I have found is that I'm, I am really able to change my consciousness. Um, if I 
focus on kind of finding like what are these core areas of my life that I really am ashamed of, that I push down, that I don't respect, that I try to hide from myself and others. And then just find, just sending them love, just like you would send a child who is in distress love. Um, it's exactly the same. And do you, do you take a, like kind of a Jungian take on the mind of like, we're made up of different archetypes rather than like, uh, cause it sounds like when you speak about your dark side, you're, you're personifying it, I guess, a metaphor. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, um, there's a, a phrase I came up with called the personified unconscious, um, which is a lot of my spirituality. So, you know, when I was talking like really into this Dionysus archetype, you know, I didn't necessarily believe there was a entity in the sky called Dionysus. Um, I'm, you know, basically go along with the scientific worldview and don't, don't tend to believe in supernatural things. Um, uh, but I, I was sort of, it's a personified unconscious. There's, there's, there is certainly something called the unconscious and we can, um, we can, it's, it doesn't have to be a vague ethereal force. You can actually give it a, a personality because it does have a kind of personality. Like if you, if different people have different issues going on in their, in their subconscious and their unconscious that take on aspects of independent personas. Um, so yeah, I would say I haven't read a lot of Jung, but I would say that I'm probably indirectly influenced by him just in the, in the way that I, I view the world. Yeah. Like your take on spirituality and maybe I'm like overusing this, uh, but it seems like it ties again to the entertainment information thing that I, I love so much. Like, it's mm-hmm. almost um, like a choice to view or to create a narrative or to like find a narrative in your experience as opposed to just looking at a bunch of mechanical parts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was creating that novel, um, which I think <laughs> in some ways was kind of a crazy idea, but it was like an extreme version of a more day-to-day way that I view our lives, which is that we're, we're living a story. Um, and you can actually revise your past if you view life that way, because let's say, for example, I mean, I've already suggested one way that I've done that is, you know, I, I went through all these challenges with, you know, the recurrence of the manic depressive symptoms and like all this craziness. And, um, you know, then was, in a, you know, horrible way, um, for four months of the depression. Well, let's say all of that leads me to changes. Let's say that that leads me to reevaluate, uh, my relationship with substances and to, to have a, um, a much more balanced approach to that. Uh, let's say that that leads me to, um, make a whole bunch of changes in my lifestyle and my diet that gives me better health. Um, that all, then all of a sudden, because I've made those changes now, that actually allows me to revise my past, not what happened. I don't get to revise what happened, but I get to revise the, the meaning of it. Like you get to change the meaning of what happens in the past based on what you do now. 
So I get for, instead of all that being this horrible thing that's just this tragedy that I suffered, all of a sudden it becomes like act one of the movie, um, you know, like where, you know, act one is where like the challenge happens, where the, the, um, the protagonist suffers some terrible loss or is put up against some terrible challenge. And then, you know, that the meaning of that changes based on what happens in act two and act three. Have you uh, constructed a meaning for this most recent uh, depression? I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to. Like, I, I think that there were aspects of me um, still not, still holding on to my, my 20s, late into my 30s. You know, my 20s were this very wild time of a lot of exploration, a lot of sexual exploration, um, a lot of uh, psychedelic exploration, um, you know, a lot of <laughs> bipolar. And I thought I had, I thought I had licked that and kind of, you know, moved on and gotten what I was going to get out of that. And in my first part of my thirties were very, you know, solid and respectable. And I was married and I was in this relationship that I thought was, you know, going to last my, my lifetime. Um, and then, that ended and I kind of went back to this wild artistic way. And I think I, I really think at this point that I've, I've had enough of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, never say never, I, I'm not going to say that I'll never go back to that, but I think, I think I saw it as its extremity. I got what I'm going to get out of it. And now, you know, I want to produce great work in the world. I want, to, I still don't feel I've written my great book yet. I mean, I'm proud of the books I've written. I've written three. Um, one of them co-authored uh, with my mentor, Brian Franklin. It's, it's um, coming out in January. Um, but I, and they're great. They're really good books. But there's, there's, there's that, like, that pure expression of me that's like, this is why I was here on the planet that I, I don't think I've tapped into yet. And honestly, you know, the, back to that question of what, what was I chasing? I think I was chasing that. I wanted that inspiration. I wanted that, that sense of the essential creative self. And now I realize that I'm, I'm going to have to find that without such extreme measures. I'm going to have to find it in a more grounded way. And, um, I think that that's appropriate for coming into my forties that, um, where I'm, you know, going to approach it in a more adult, mature way. Hmm. Yeah, thanks. Um, we actually have one more listener question. It's just on the, it's on the same topic. Um, mm -hmm. What are some What are some things you tell your younger self about love and life? Wow. Um, let me think about that for a moment. That's a great question. Um, I would tell my younger self. To, um, to not get so caught up in, uh, being certain that, you know, being in relationship with one person or another was going to, was going to, you know, solve all my problems and make me happy. Um, because my, my tendency is to meet a new person, a potential romantic partner, and just get totally caught up in excitement and passion and 
wild thrill that this person is in my life or might be in my life. Um, and having all kinds of, you know, fantasies about how wonderful everything's going to be when we're together. Um, and what I found is that in certain ways, like nothing changes. Um, and you know, I was with an amazing partner. My ex-wife Jenna is one of the most remarkable people I'll ever know. And she is beautiful and brilliant and creative. And you know, I, lo I love her. I still love her. And we're still very good friends after our divorce. Um, but the, the idea that, you know, everything is going to be perfect after you're in a relationship is, is really misguided. And, you know, we, we did have wonderful life at this, particularly in the first four years of our relationship. Um, but you know, there was like stuff comes up and relationships, um, dredge up like some of your most challenging stuff. And I think it's actually unfair and, and probably not very attractive either to your partner to put on them the solution to your problems or your like to, to, to make them the source of everything that's going to be wonderful in your life. Um, because at that point you're just kind of using somebody in a sense. Um, and if you can, if you can find some way to feel complete outside of a relationship, then you're coming to your partner already as a complete person. And then they're just adding wonderfulness to your life. You're not coming to them with a neediness. Um, I, that's, um, you know, that's what I'm, uh, that's what I've come to, um, in, um, in my time on the planet so far. And right now I'm in a phase of like, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got all these issues I'm trying to solve and I'm, and especially like the libido thing, I'm not even really dating right now. I'm literally just trying to get myself to a place where I, you know, I have, I'm, I'm coming to a partner complete and in a great place and stable and with a lot to offer. Um, and I think that's, that's going to be a much stronger place, uh, for whatever next relationship I'm in. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. There's just a, one, one topic I want to cover, uh, probably our last sure. topic is, uh, well, one thing that's unusual about your or unique about your whole uh, manic depressive cycle was that so much of it was public. Like I was able to follow for the, I mean, obviously I'm sure you didn't post everything, but it was, you can follow your trajectory. Um, do you think that exposure affected it at all? Um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a factor. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up in, um, somewhat of an unusual family situation. My father is a uh, very well-known, um, uh, anti-war activist. Um, his name is Daniel Ellsberg and, um, there, there's, you know, he's from the Vietnam era and there's been a movie made about him. In fact, several movies made about him and books. And, you know, he was, he's not like a rock star, like a movie star, but you know, he's definitely well known to people who are interested in American politics. And, um, and you know, he was in the media a lot and interviewed and giving lectures and people came up to me and said, you know, your father is my hero. And you know, I got that a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, 
I just kind of grew up just very comfortable with the information being shared with the public. I don't seem to have that fear of like, what will people think of me or, um, and, um, you know, and, um, so I, um, I just, I, I didn't ha get that. So I have chosen to, to live pretty openly about what I'm, what's going on in my life. Um, again, partly, you know, part of it is that I, I think it's helpful to other people to see, you know, a really vulnerable, honest sharing of the ups and downs of life. Um, and part of it is, it's just, it, it's just what I do. I don't, I don't know why I can't explain it. Um, so, you know, part of me regrets that. I think that I probably alienated some people. Um, I probably, there's probably people who think I'm a, you know, cuckoo, um, because of what I was writing in the manic phase, but you know, th those people then aren't my audience. Um, I think a lot of my audience for my writing stuck with me and was like, okay, you're going through some wild rides right now, but you know, it's all part of, it's all part of Michael Ellsberg. And I, I think I, um, have developed a brand, if you will, of, you know, having a certain tone that is wild and uninhibited and free and unashamed. And all of it was, all of it was part of that. So it was what it was. And, um, you know, probably, um, <laughs> going forward, if I have another manic episode, I should probably not, uh, I should probably stay away from Facebook, but it's what I did. And, and it's all just been part of my journey. So, yeah. And, and really like all of these things we're talking about have come from your willingness to just be open about your private life, which like I, I've, I've not encountered anywhere else. So I'm really grateful that you did share it for this episode. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and the one thing that I've, I've been really happy about, um, sharing publicly is my stuff around BDSM and kink because so many people have written to me and said like, Oh, you know, I, I practice this too, but, uh, you know, I can't be public about it because of my work. So, um, I've just met a lot of interesting people who are in the same, you know, exploring the same things through being public about it myself. Oh yeah. Are, are you still working with Ian Hartley? Um, yeah, we're going to, we're going to keep doing workshops. We taught one workshop called dominance for nice guys, which was great. It, we had 15 guys and it was, we'd spent all day with them and, just went into the, the basics of dominance and, uh, we had a blast. So we wanted to keep doing that. That's awesome. Yeah. What's it like working with her? It's great. I mean, she is such a fountain of knowledge. Like this woman, um, for those who don't know, she's a porn star who's been probably the longest working porn star that's still in the business. Um, she's in her fifties now. I think she's been, in, in actively making porn since her mid twenties. Um, and you know, she's a feminist. She's, um, you know, used to be a registered nurse. She is an author. She's really outspoken. Um, and she's just a total character. I mean, there's only one Nina Hartley and, uh, and, um, I learn a lot from her and I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like, I'm at the place where I can teach that workshop just 
by myself yet, but, um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about dominance from her. And so we make it, we make a good team. Yeah. Yeah. I heard her interview with uh, Chris Ryan on, on his podcast and it was so fascinating. Her take on, on subjects that everyone talks about, like things like porn and feminism, but she has such a unique and wise perspective. Yeah, totally. Yeah. She's definitely worth checking out. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, for being on with us. Was there anything uh, you wanted to share? Maybe any, any like last bits of advice or any thoughts you wanted to give the audience? Uh, wow. I mean, we covered, we covered so much, you know, I, I, I hope all this stuff about manic depression, um, you know, is relevant to, to people. Um, you know, I think a lot of it applies to, to you know, creative people in general, uh, it's, it's highly correlated with having some kind of mental condition, whether it's, um, you know, depression, manic depression or unipolar depression or, um, you know, high anxiety. So, um, I think, you know, a lot of what I said, again, I'm not giving medical advice, but I'm just speaking as a perspective of a you know, long time patient, um, uh, a lot of what I said probably applies in different ways to people with, um, with different, you know, different medical conditions, whether it's depression or anxiety. Um, a, a lot of the advice is, is very similar for all of these. Yeah. I, th I think it's going to be super useful, particularly for creative types. Um, I'm very much looking forward to re-listening to this later. Um, yeah. So thank you so awesome. much for spending time with us here, Michael. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to be a part of the virtual audience for future episodes, make sure to follow me at crowdcast.io slash Rwando. See you next time.